the game, as are any references to wood chippers, helicopters, or firearms. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA. We do not condone illegal behavior. We do not offer financial, medical, or any other professional advice. All comments are for comedic purposes only. Views expressed within this program do not accurately reflect the views of the corporation or its sponsors. Use only as directed by medical professional. Use of this product may lead to cancer. Other known side effects may include, but are not limited to, hypothermia, heat stroke, sudden adult death syndrome, dizziness, nausea, irritability, cognitive dissonance, confusion, sudden onset dementia and Alzheimer's, winter vagina, erectile dysfunction, transphobia. See pamphlet for more details. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Consume. Obey. Welcome to my Friends Hate Freedom podcast. This is Bear Snare, and I'm here with Mark Hendricks. And, Mark, you were in the Marines, Marine Reserves, for quite a while. Are you still in? No, I did my obligatory six years and got out. Gotcha. Congratulations. So I've been done for a while now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how it worked with the reserves, If like how long you had to keep going back or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about, I wanted to ask you like where you were at before you joined and what made you join. And then we'll talk about, you know, your journey through. Yeah. Where I was before was, I guess you could say your typical, um, conservative, um, what we would call a neocon, I would guess be more accurate. Um, my parents were pretty much what you'd call conventional sort of, well, my dad's Canadian. So, so my mom was like sort of an old school Republican. Um, so that's very much the, uh, attitude I adopted as I got older. And when I was in high school looking for what I was going to do next, you know, the Iraq war was kind of um, pretty close to the peak. Um, yeah. Maybe the little bit after the peak, uh, depending how you look at it. But um, so I, that I was very big part of my growing up experience. You know, September 11th happened when I was uh, 13 and I'd always had an interest in the military as I think many young boys and men are apt to do. You know, I liked guns and I liked running around. And then when the wars kicked off, <clears throat> all that really came to the forefront. And um, I suppose you could say I sort of fell for the uh, classic recruitment pitch 
Although with that said, I wasn't recruited. Like nobody had to talk me into it. It was something I wanted to do. Right. Um, because I, I believed the whole, uh, sort of apolitical about it in a sense, like you can debate whether it was supposed to happen or not, but the fact is it is happening now and somebody has got to do it. That was my attitude. Um, and everyone thought joining the Marine Corps was cool and I wanted to be cool. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that's what I did. I, I never had a deeply philosophical sort of rationale for it. Um, I just wanted to do it and was never a hundred percent sure why I was just what I wanted to do. So, yeah, we, we grew up in an environment where it's a very like honorable and respectable thing to do. So it's, um, it's easy to, to be drawn toward that. And, uh, exactly. Regardless of what you're, um, depth of, of thinking about it before then is. And yeah, I was 18 when nine 11 happened. So it was like a lot of people from my class joined up right away or shortly afterwards. And it just, it was like, here we go. You know, it was, it was, Hey, we're at war now. Time to, time to do it. Um, so what was your experience with it like? And did you start to see, um, like, did, did you start to, um, realize that something was wrong while you were in, or was it after you got out? I would say the second half of my time in felt a lot different than it did at first. Um, and not for, any reason other than I just got sick of the, the bureaucracy and the bullshit. And, um, there was a lack of focus that was frustrating to me. So I was all for gearing up and going off to war and training for Iraq or training for Afghanistan. But that was winding down at the time, uh, or toward the second half of, of my six years. So, Really what it was is was a frustration of, hey, like, let's go do some deployments or let's, you know, not do anything. Uh, so it was, I wanted to, to do more was really what it was. And then I just, at the same time, when things weren't happening, I, the, the focus shifted within the service, I would say. And it got a lot more focused on that, like, stateside garrison sort of nonsense that's really frustrating and tedious um you know worrying about your uniforms and haircuts and just hmm. just a lack of focus so i wasn't into that and um i actually was able to get out slightly early believe it or not they had an early out program huh for people who were in my position and because they were actually downsizing the forces at the time, this was about 2013. So my contract would have been up then anyway, but I was able to, I think I got out two months early. Gotcha. And, um, well, that was a while ago. Know, I was ready to be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my skepticism of 
wars themselves didn't really build until several years after I was out. So, um, so my decision to not continue on wasn't really um, motivated by anything other than frustration with just right being in the military. And so, um, but speaking of, yeah, go ahead. Well, so speaking of 2013, um, it was a turning point of sorts then because it was the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination. Ah, yeah. Um, And my brother played me a long interview on Coast to Coast AM of Roger Stone talking about his book about LBJ being behind the plot to kill Kennedy. <laughs> and I was, um, it's funny now because Roger Stone's become so notorious at the time. He wasn't, you know, hardly anyone knew about him. I mean, people knew about him, but he wasn't a household name. Right. Um, and I, I was fascinated by the story, um, the history around it. Cause it was something that, I'd never really known much about or paid much attention to. So it got me interested in that era, but most importantly, it made me realize how questionable, let's say, the inner workings of government are. Um, Regardless of of who you think was behind that plot, it just, was sort of the first step into realizing the dysfunction and the corruption within the FBI and the intelligence communities and, um, you know, how sleazy your average politician is. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. That's, that's, that's a new one. That's like, I haven't heard that being like anyone's entry point, I guess like JFK, the whole thing for a lot of people was, more back in the day than, than like, um, in our generation. (laughs) Yeah, it it was, um, and the other thing that was interesting about it is Roger Stone himself talked about being, you know, he's a long time political operative, but at this Mm -hmm. time, interestingly, he actually was calling himself a libertarian. Oh yeah. And, and was a, I think he was, had joined the party. He was really frustrated with the Republican party. Um, and I, that was something I was sort of wanting to hear because I had become, I just, I couldn't verbalize it and didn't fully understand it yet, but I had become aware of the, the mono party or the uniparty, not in those terms, but just how, you know, it was in that era where I used to listen to, some conservative talk radio and it would be, you know, Obama was in. So it was like, Oh, the Republicans need the Senate so they can stop Obama. And then they get the Senate and they didn't do shit. And then it was like, Oh, now they, they need Congress. And, you know, then they get Congress and they didn't do anything. And then it was like, well, they need the presidency. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, struck me it's so ridiculous. Um, from that time on, I was just sort of this slow, very gradual um, 
dissatisfaction with um, the party system and then also becoming frustrated. I, I pretty much ignored all uh, corporate press around that time, you know, and had been. You know, I used yeah. to listen to conservative talk radio, but I'd listen to NPR also. Yeah. I still hate listening you know, to them. Thinking, yeah. It's, it's opposition and research. It was just, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, that was, that was the idea. And then. Oh, um, I think uh, you're turning your head away or something. You keep like fading out. Sorry. Anyway, you were listening to NPR. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just, uh, none of it struck me as authentic. Um, felt like you were being sold some bill of goods. And it also occurred to me, as like, I don't, I don't want conservative media, nor do I want liberal media. I just want news. Mm-hmm. I don't want some ideological bent toward the information that's being delivered. Um, and, uh, so I, I eventually stopped listening to all those things too. And, uh, I guess sort of started exploring the so-called alternative media world. Yeah. So uh, what'd you find there around that time? Uh, you know, I didn't find much, um, really up until, you know, I didn't start listening to podcasts until 2016 when I had a job where I was on the road a lot. So I needed stuff to listen to. Mm. And oddly enough, all I listened to actually was Jocko, mm-hmm. which um, is part of my journey as well, because that was, you know, he reviews military books, um, talks a lot about tactics and leadership. It was all very interesting things that you could apply to life in general. But the thing that it did that got me to where I am now was it made me very much aware of the costs of war uh, in a way that I wasn't, even though I had been in the military. And just after you hear stories again and again and again of all these uh, things that took place, um, you know, the Pacific in World War II, the Pacific campaign, particularly just, it was absolutely insane. Everything that went on in that campaign, it made me realize if you're going to send the military to go do something, there better be a damn good reason for it. Right. You know, cause these guys are going to go out there. They're going to make things happen. Um, they're going to sacrifice everything. They're going to put everything on the line. And if you're putting their lives in harm's way, you know, it better be justified. Yeah. And so that was an attitude that I, that became very well developed in my mind. I guess you could call it, you know, the costs of war. And so then you start looking at inevitably, well, what is the justification for these conflicts? And I started learning a lot about Vietnam. What a, boondoggle that was and uh so you know over a period of years um started to um 
anti-war actually from studying war. Hmm. And, um, uh, and so I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, anti-war in the sense that I think that you can avoid war. I think that people are always going to be doing dumb stuff and they're bound to happen. Right. But, but with that said, the, um, and any war in our lifetime and within the past hundred years has pretty much been no good reason for it, or it could have been avoided. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was kind of where I was. And then um, 20 rolled around and the first lockdowns were happening. I had maybe two days of, because uh, you know, before that I had heard rumors of lockdowns and I was saying they'll never do that. Like the private sector will never put up with it. You know, if you tell you know, I was all about business at the time. I was like, if you tell businesses to shut down, they'll never do it. Like, that's just a non-starter. So I wasn't worried about it. And then when it happened, I thought for maybe two or three days, like, oh man, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe this is really serious. And that's why people are doing really outrageous things. And then <laughs> I got over that pretty quick and common phrase i i became radicalized <laughs> by the covid the covid regime yeah and just i just searched and searched and searched until i could i found people who made sense yeah and um the only people who made any sense were in the you know the liberty movement and um i don't i can't tell you like who I would have heard first. I, I had started listening to uh, Michael Malice, I think, because I'd heard him on Joe Rogan. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just listening to Rogan will get you exposed to a bunch of the guys who are in the libertarian anarchist um, movement for sure. And man, thank, thank goodness for Rogan because he gets those guys on and explores these ideas, you know, even if he himself can be discouraging sometimes because, you know, it's like <clears throat> these guys tell him what's going on and it's it's he seemingly forgets by the next episode or something like that sometimes. But I right. think it's just because he likes to have good, you know, good conversations with whoever he's talking to as well. He's more interested in what where they're coming from than whatever his own um, standpoint is. But, yeah, I mean, so I was already semi-radicalized i'd been in the liberty libertarian um thing for quite a long time by then because i had started reading ron paul in like 06 or something but even still you know 2020 was it was a paradigm shift that i felt i was laid off for two and a half months and <clears throat> it was definitely a wake-up where i realized that even though I was interested in libertarian ideas and stuff and economics and that kind of thing. Like now it just got real, you know, it was, it was like, Oh wow. All these guns that we'd been, um, pointing around the world, they just got turned inwards on us. Like all our own systems are, are, um, 
quote unquote defense <laughs> industries and stuff like that were now like gonna be used on us and luckily I saw like I was listening to podcasts already so like I understood that there was a bigger agenda at play from the very beginning but yeah even then like it was unbelievable to go through it and just it's, it's such a surreal weird thing um to have to deal with and and yeah it's uh, it definitely got more real then absolutely and you know now at this point it almost is still hard to believe what what actually went down sometimes yeah and like I, I the company I, i'm at they only shut down for two days um you know, it's a small family business and, you know, the, by the next. Hold up, Mark. You're, you're oh. pretty much cut out. Um, start back at working for a small family business only being All cut right. down. You for... are too. Okay. So it was only a couple days and then something with Pennsylvania changed and they said, uh, w- you know, we were deemed essential. Uh, and from that time forward, I was like, we're not listening to any more of that bullshit. Like, you know, they're going to criminalize, you know, you making a living. I don't think so. And by that point I'd found good people to listen to like Dave Smith. And, um, I, I had heard, uh, Jeff Deist on, um, the David Gronoski show. Mm. I started listening to David Gronoski. He's great. Yeah. I like him a lot. And I started listening to him because Michael Malice was advertising that show at one point uh, when I was listening to his podcast. And so I I used to listen to it all the, a lot more than I do now, but I, he's a coast to coast guy, isn't he? I think I he, don't actually know. He at least used to be on it or something like that. I get that impression. I'm not sure why. That anyway, irrelevant. But, and Jeff Dice is also yeah, awesome. I, I just had no idea. Like David Grunowski is one of those people who I I'm like the only person I know who listens to him. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had heard of you know I wasn't far into the Liberty Movement. I didn't know all the players and the different groups and whatnot i'd heard of the mises like i'd heard of mises and then um oh and i i should mention i'd i'd come across peter schiff okay yeah and so that got my economic thinking uh headed in that direction and he he always had like sort of a republican sort of uh bias but Mm -hmm. Time, like he was always super critical of the Republicans and he'd be critical of Trump and everything. So it was refreshing to me because he wanted to like the Republicans, but he couldn't. And I felt like he was really honest about that. Um, not to mention really good economic info. Right. Uh, yeah. He's, he's one that, um, he's a hardcore gold bug and he's very smart. He's well, I guess his dad was, was he assassinated or imprisoned 
he was imprisoned for like tax evasion because because he was just like sticking to his beliefs and so that's where that's the cloth that peter schiff is made out of is is resisting the state and and watching the state you know imprison his dad where he hadn't really he hadn't done anything that hurt anyone all he didn't do or all he did was not pay some tax that he was being coerced into paying for no reason <laughs> you know right well and he wrote a book uh called Irwin Schiff that is Peter's yeah. dad he wrote a book called um uh the government mafia i think it is and according to peter schiff it's one of like two books that have ever been banned by the federal government Um, and you, you can buy it, but it's apparently been banned and, um, but his thing, so yeah, he died in federal prison, you know, handcuffed to a hospital bed when he was ill in his eighties, you know, they still just, uh, wouldn't let him out even though he, I don't know if he had cancer or something like that, but, um, he wrote that book and his take on the income tax was I think he had a fifth amendment take where um, you're forced to perjure yourself essentially, or no, sorry, not perjure. You're forced to incriminate yourself when you file your tax returns. And so that was his angle. And I know there's other angles out there, but. um, Yeah. So so Peter Schiff had gotten me interested in Austrian economics. So, then when I heard Jeff Dice and the Mises Institute, that made me uh, a Mises guy. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that um I, I heard someone else saying recently how um when you file taxes, you're sort of going through this whole long process to guess a number that you owe. And if you guess it right, then the IRS is like good you guessed it right but they already have a number in mind that you owe and if you don't guess it right or you don't your your number doesn't match theirs then they're like no actually you owe us more and it's like why do we play this whole game if you already have a number in mind that we owe why don't you just tell us what the number is (laughs) you know (laughs) it's the whole the whole system of of the way we do taxes is so messed up and and convoluted and and yeah, just like making us jump through hoops for something we're already doing anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah. I heard it explained that way too. And, you know, it's one of those things that's so simple once you hear it, but you never think about it that way because we're so used to it. Yeah. So has, um, other than um, coming across like the Mises Institute has the pandemic changed your views on more or are there other ways in which it's changed your approach to life? I think it's, yeah, it's probably changed uh, my outlook on things in more ways than I am aware of. Um, But certainly, yeah, it was a huge, it makes me look at everything differently. That's for sure. What do you, what do you see as the answer or 
any <laughs> any partial answers would be acceptable. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been so deep in the the discovery phase and sort of relearning everything in a fresh light. Um, I feel very far away from having answers. Um, though with that said, I think I'm becoming very uh, intrigued by, by, you know, decentralization movements, um, you know, boosting up local governments and, and using more nullification um, powers. Yeah. You know, radical federalism is something that is appealing. And, you know, COVID gave us examples of that, of course. With like Florida. Um, yeah. 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 In South Dakota. Yeah. And it'd be great to see it be more local than that too. I mean, even, I mean, it gave us examples of this, but we just don't know about them as much, but you know, sheriffs of towns who were just like, Nope, we're not going to enforce these rules. You know, that's uh that's one of the towns you want to live in. <laughs> Unfortunately. Exactly. And my town wasn't one of those towns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and, uh, you know, it makes you realize, you know, the power that a sheriff has. Yeah. And, um, you know, for good or for ill, but in terms of resisting state and federal um, tomfoolery, you know, a sheriff election is something we should be paying a lot more attention to than the stupid general election stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, I heard, I was talking to, Toby and Johnny um, just recently about an idea that Johnny brought up a while ago that I find intriguing. And it's a, a way of taxation where it's like a single stream direct accountability. Um, so each person or citizen would pay only to their town, their local government, whoever that was. And then that, local government would be responsible for paying up to the next level, like the county. And then the county would be responsible for paying up to the next level, like the state. So on each level, the person collecting taxes from you has direct accountability to you. So if you don't see um, that you're getting your money's worth, it's going to be an issue and you can vote them out and replace them rather than just saying, oh, I guess we just have to pay more for things we don't believe in. Um, so it's an interesting concept that, you know, while <clears throat> while we may believe taxation is theft, let's assume we're in a paradigm where there's going to be some kind of taxation. This would incentivize um, a much more local power and it would disincentivize the the federal central power. Yeah, I think that kind of thinking is exactly the sort of thing we need. And, um, you know, because speaking of Jeff Dice, I, you know, I listen to most anything I can find of his, mostly because I I just like his speaking style. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy for me to understand. I think oh, he's, he's so um, eloquent. He, he really yeah. is good at um, describing. He he puts things in a way that I find mind-blowing. Like, 
so many times when I've listened to him, he'll just put something in some kind of perspective where I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's not like maybe it's not even something that I didn't that I wasn't aware of or that I didn't technically know, but he'll make it so clear. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so one of the things he talks about is Switzerland, where I think they're called cantons. That's like their state or their Uh provinces. And over there, the tax burden, which is high, I think Switzerland's sort of known for high taxes, but it's inverse of what ours is, meaning your highest percentage of tax payout goes to the local government and the canton. And then the smallest allocation goes to the federal government. Hmm. And they explain all of this saying, you know, us in our central government, we don't know what's best for all the different regions of Switzerland. And so it makes no sense for us to take more money and sort of influence them. You know, we let them take in the money and decide how they should govern their perspective regions. And so, like you were saying, taxation is theft, but let's start with the premise that we're going to have them. So what would be a better way to do it? Um, As opposed to, you know, when someone like Ted Cruz in 2016 was talking about how he was going to abolish the IRS, it's like, (laughs) no, you're not. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to believe that he would have even meant it, you know, like empty words, right? Yeah. And of like him of all people, you know, that that was just, he must have been smart enough to know that there was a dissatisfaction with status quo politics. And so he, he wanted something that would appeal to more liberty minded people, but it was just such a non-starter. Yeah. Um, you know, if Ron Paul said that, but you know ted cruz it's like yeah come on dude yeah Ron Paul at least would get in there and try to do it (laughs) yeah um so other than that i mean i don't know about you like where you stand with the the national divorce thing but you know that could look like so many different things yeah um including just radical federalism and i think that would be a good starting point sure yeah yeah, I I have mixed feelings about it. Um I I like the idea. I don't know that it would really work if it's as a state by state thing. Um I agree with you like the radical federalism just like people asserting their own sovereignty is really what it what I'd like to see it um be. And you know, I'll I'll give a little bit of credence to the idea that um uh we're stronger as a whole nation but i don't know what that's worth at this point (laughs) you know aside from like military defense but it seems like that's been pretty much gutted with our foreign policy especially in the last year with ukraine like we're just sending all of our equipment and stuff out to get demolished or smuggled or whatever and like I, I don't know where we're even at but it's I know we're having trouble um recruiting and it, it does seem like we've like our defenses have been diminished and everything we do in the name of defense obviously 
doesn't end up being that. We've got Coast Guard out in Somalia, right? <laughs> it's not our coast. Um, so, yeah, um, aside from, from my one sort of caveat of national defense, it's like, yeah, I, I really like the idea of, um, just individual liberty and, and local liberty and not being beholden to the behemoth that is the federal government for sure. Um, and as far as like the taxation and money flow, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous that we pay more taxes to the federal government and then the states and localities have to kind of like beg for it back from them. You know, like why does the school, right. your local school, if you're paying school taxes, it should just go straight to that school and not to the federal government. And then they get it back through the federal government and then they have to, they've got all kinds of strings attached to, to that money that comes back, you know, where they're the only strings that would be attached if it was coming directly from the the local citizenry would be the ones that they ask for, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, there was a great uh, thing I read probably in 2020, you know, the latter part, while the, uh, the two weeks to slow the spread was in its, you know, fourth or fifth month. <laughs> um, there there's an article comparing the 55 mile an hour speed limit to the COVID regime restrictions and mask mandates. I think it's probably focused on mask mandates at the time. Mm-hmm. And the backstory of the 55 uh, speed limit was actually, I think during the late seventies at the oil embargo, and fuel shortages and it w- it came out as a way to save fuel oh yeah and it was adopted um you know at the time you know the federal government was had never sort of mandated a speed limit before so i don't remember exactly how it worked at the beginning but then of course the fuel shortage thing was solved and so they uh someone of course thought well let's get rid of this 55 mile an hour speed limit but of course you know 20 years later they revisit it and by that time they decided oh well we should keep it because we did some bogus study that shows that it's safer safer (laughs) yeah you know now there's this new reason to keep it and then we all know how that went it wasn't really until um the last 10 years that people have changed it but one of the things during the time there were states that are like well this is bullshit we're not going to do it anymore and to your point about the federal government and the money they're like oh well if you don't do the 55 mile an hour speed limit in your state guess what you're not going to get federal money for your highway projects so you know it's just a silly example but yeah no it's a good one though because it's uh it it shows exactly what I was talking about where, yeah, you've got strings attached to get your own money back from the right. government. Yeah. Well, the other thing I like about um, a new way to look at it is if you took this hypothetical where, you know, Russia 
invades the U.S. and they they take over the country. So they're occupying the United States and the, they put up their puppet government that's running it and they impose an organization that penalizes you for being productive by taking 30 or 40 percent of your profits that you have to sell you know send to the new regime and uh, therefore you're disincentivized to be productive and you know on and on and on so basically describing the irs yeah and so if you had a hostile foreign power that behaved the way our own domestic government does you know people wouldn't put up with it for a second yeah absolutely i like to think anyway um well <laughs> people put yeah. It turns out people put up with a whole lot that we wouldn't think they'd put up with. You know, um, well, since you like Jocko Unraveling, you know Daryl Cooper. Um, have you listened to his Martyr Made podcast at all? I did. Um, actually, fairly recently, I didn't listen to Martyr Made, even though I was aware of it for a while. Um, I listened to his episode on Ukraine. Uh close to a year ago now. And then after that, I started listening to more of his. So yeah, I've listened to uh, his Jonestown series. The Jonestown is what I wanted. uh, Yeah. That was what I wanted to bring up because it is amazing what, um, that was the miners in West Virginia, right? Well, the, the Jonestown was the, um, Jim Jones, the, uh, uh, people's temple guy. Oh, 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 okay. I have not listened but, to that. I've listened to the, okay. whatever the one, um, Oh, who's the, America. Yes. Who's America. Yeah. The West Virginia miners. It was like a five hour episode or something like that. And it was amazing. <clears throat> it was really powerful. Yes. And it was really incredible. The, the level of, um, abuse that these people took, where these companies came in and disrupted their way of life and just started using them basically as forced labor. And they were like, well, we're getting paid. And they just kind of like went along with it so long before violence broke out, before they actually rebelled against these people who really didn't value their lives or their work, you know. It's pretty incredible what they put up with compared to what we've had to put up with, you know? Yeah. I'm always struck by stories like that. Um, and this is something I became aware of listening to, um, Jocko's podcast and then, you know, some other things I read and then, you know, Jordan Peterson, of course, cause he, I came across him along the way and, just how easy it is for things to go sideways. Yeah. And really fast. Yeah. Peterson's Um, line about never forget. What are we supposed to never forget? It's that we are the Nazis, right? Yeah. It's that it's so easy to become that and you don't even realize it. (laughs) That's, that's a really good offering from him. Yeah. Right, and he's got his goofy stuff, but oh, uh, yeah, I think I'm, he's I'm not spot on about that. Yeah, yeah. 
he he has offered a lot of value, even if he's got some some weird things. Weird yeah, reading history that as as the aggressor, not as the victim. Right. Yeah, and um, and the, you know, COVID itself was a not COVID the the response to it and what people put up with just showed you that, you know, the propaganda campaign was so effective um, that people were, and, you know, some of them are, are still, still doing are, it to this yeah. day. Yep. People we know, or at least people I know. Still oh, yeah, me too. Pretty yeah. bought in. Right, and then <laughs> the same same people who who are flying a Ukrainian flag in their yard today yeah you know have five boosters and three masks on their face <laughs> well you know what i was disappointed by is some of the people um especially in the more boomer generation who kind of saw through the covid thing and were like oh man they're all but they're all so evil they're all a bunch of shitheads and then the ukraine thing comes along and it's like they completely forgot that they get lied to constantly by this media and this government, and they're all about helping Ukraine. You know, oh, we have to, we have to be part of this. And it's like, why? What? You really think that it was unprovoked? <laughs> you know, right. like there's a lot more going on there. <laughs> remember Iraq <laughs> how, right. like now at this point pretty much everyone accepts we relied into that although some people some people in that generation that I know um, are not quite as accepting of that it's a constant thing with my dad like he he's just from a generation where a lot of what he was told they just considered true and it's it's hard to let go of a lot of it you know um, still pretty into Abe Lincoln and that whole narrative. <laughs> Just because, as Norm Macdonald says, it's so amazing. It's funny the um, the good guys always win. Yeah, <laughs> all these wars. Well, you know, I listened or no, I didn't listen. Yeah, there is a book about um. It's called American Betrayal, and it was about like the the Soviet Lend-Lease program and FDR's cozy relationship with Stalin throughout the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so we're allies with them. One, it just makes you realize how the World War II narrative in and of itself is so flawed in the way it's yeah told. It it definitely is. But we're giving the Soviets tons of money, tons of gear. Uh, the person who wrote the book contends that we gave them uh, the recipe on how to build an atom bomb via the Lend-Lease program. <laughs> and, you know, there actually were, you know, <laughs> McCarthy was kind of right in that there was a communist under every bed. <laughs> um but uh you know it was just so ridiculous and then the war ends and it's like oh now 
now Russia's or the Soviet Union is bad and we need a cold war right. with them. And, you know, it was basically all a confection of the budding arms industry. Well, and even the way, like, right after World War II, it was like, all right, Nazis bad, communists, eh. <laughs> right. Which, which country killed more, right? Like... If I remember right, Stalin killed more people than Hitler. Now I don't know, like per capita of you know his country or whatever, but like it's it's worth considering that maybe, um, just because the Nazis were bad doesn't mean we chose the right side. Not that we had to choose a side at all. You know, FDR really kind of exactly like many presidents seems and to want was... to get in involved where he didn't need to be. <laughs> And I guess, well, Churchill had, it, that was World War One, right? That Churchill was really influential? Or was it World War Two? My history is terrible. No, Second World War. It yeah. was, it was World War Two. Okay, yeah. He was. Well, you know, that was, well, I mean, was he was really the original bad guy. Who's that? In terms of intervention stuff. Um, you know. Oh, Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. With his. Yeah. Making the world safe for democracy. And, you know, coming in. You know, I, I'm. I think the. Uh, the idea that when the U.S. came into the First World War, which was essentially a stalemate at the time, you know, the Germans, they were just kind of bogged down, nothing happening. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. came in and tipped the balance toward the Allies, so-called, and enforced the Treaty of Versailles on the Germans, which was, you know, absolutely destroyed the German economy after the war, which directly led to the rise of Hitler and the onset of the Second World War. Yeah, and you know, the idea that if if the Germans and the French and the English had been left to work it out on their own, they probably would have because they've all been fighting each other at different times throughout the last, you know, 800 years or whatever. And uh, they could have come to a better agreement, but because Wilson intervened, you know, it forced that lopsided, you know, unconditional surrender onto Germany, which laid the, all the groundwork. Yeah, yeah. it, And, yeah, Germany was so screwed throughout that that there was bound to be some kind of conflict not too long down the road. <clears throat> you there? Yeah. Ah, good. Yeah. I'm here. Should I just turn my video off? Oh, yeah, you can. It doesn't matter. Um, so, you're pretty uh, active in the church. Is that something that you see as part of a solution, you know, having that community and stuff? I think so. I mean, I think it's important to have strong um, local communities and community functions within them that bring people together and keep them, you know, interacting with each other and, um, 
working towards things that are productive. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's a good thing. It's a sort of an old fashioned uh, community activity um, in the sense. Yeah. For many years, I've sort of kept my distance while, while keeping like one foot sort of in the church and one foot out of the church kind of thing. I've, you know, been on the fringe and I've definitely, you know, I've, I've held on to some like grudges and, and qualms that I have that are, but now, um, since the pandemic, I feel a lot more, um, on the side of the church as a whole. Um, and just having some kind of community solidarity. And I certainly have become a bit more religious in my own, in my own thinking, in my own life. Um, even if I haven't started going to church more, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I definitely see more, um, appeal and use to it than I did before, you know, because before it was, it was just kind of like, well, every, like, I I often feel like every time I give an inch, they want to take a mile and that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, now I'm sort of like, well, yeah, okay. Even if I don't get along with everyone perfectly, and even if, um, I need to like set boundaries or whatever, there's, there's something to be said for it, you know? Um, and if, if you can, I don't know how much on the same page, um, that community is, but like, if you can get a bunch of people who live near you really on the same page to, um, who are, um, producing different foods or services, that kind of thing, like really creating a more sustainable kind of community that's worth everything. And I know there are people. Yeah, I think who... that's true. And yeah, cause I had my times of, of being distant as well. And, um, you know, keeping one foot in one foot out, um, or, you know, maybe not even a whole foot in at different times. And, uh, but I think that, um, as I got a little bit older, I, um, became direct you know if you're if you want to look for it you can find the value uh and if you want to look for the negatives you can find the negatives too so it's really just a matter of um (laughs) if you don't want it to be a good thing it it won't be but uh it is if you want it to be and and so i just decided to go in that direction and get Mm. more involved and then of course when i started to have kids um you know you have this moment where you have to think about okay what sort of environment and community do i want you know for my family and i think the um it's it's more what i would want to raise children with going to church as opposed to sort of raising them in a because you got to ask yourself, what's the alternative um, for how you orient yourself in the world or how you teach a kid to orient themselves in the world? 
And, um, you know, they can all grow up and go do whatever they want someday if, if they don't stay with it. But, um, at least I think you're giving them a decent foundation. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. I, I, with the way public schools are now, it's like they either have to go to, um, like a private church school or be homeschooled. Cause I, Oh yeah. Like it's funny. Cause Aaron and I, even though we don't have kids, um, we moved here with that in mind, you know, we're like, Oh, there's a school right next door. We can send them walking to school once it's that time. And, and it wasn't long before we realized that, Oh no, even if we still live here, if we have kids, they're not going to that school, (laughs) (laughs) you know? (laughs) And I would, I would put a whole lot of effort into making that happen. Because, um, yeah, why would you let your enemy raise your kids? <laughs> exactly. You know, I told my wife that, um, you know, if I had, if it came down to it, I'd quit my job and I'd homeschool the kids myself. <laughs> if yeah. worse came to worse. <laughs> Is that something you've considered, even with the option of the church school? Because I know some people are doing that um, in the church. I, I absolutely consider it. Um, I like the church school. Um, I, I certainly, I mean, it's definitely the lesser of two evils, but I think it's more than that. I don't think it's just a matter of picking the least worst thing. I think it is a, a decent school. Mm-hmm. My, um, the things that I don't like about it are, that it's fundamentally, you know, the educational architecture, if you will, is still based on the same flawed Prussian model that the government schools are based on. Right. And I don't think that that is a, a very effective model for what true education ought to be. And so those are really where my, my criticisms lie is in, um, you can have a privatized uh, church version of uh, something that's still uh, not getting at the fundamentals in the way that it should. Um, so in that sense, you know, the, just the whole rote learning thing, the whole focus on test taking. Um, yeah, I think the way we, we look at benchmarks are are flawed and the i mean schools need to be small so i like that about it yeah um but you know there's so little focus on peer-to-peer learning oh Hmm. you know which i think is something that you can benefit from the way you learn from an older sibling yeah Um, you know there's things that peers pass to each other in ways that you can't as an instructor um, so little things like that, I I've thought of a yeah. decent amount about education and I just, I don't like the, the underlying structure of, yeah, I mean, the fact, conventional school, just the fact that they still use 
um, like a history textbook and base the curriculum off of that is sort of a turnoff for me. And I, I would assume you just mm-hmm. because half of what's in there could just get tossed <laughs> and you'd be no worse off. <laughs> you'd have no less accurate an understanding of history. <laughs> Absolutely. And, but I will say I loved some of the teach. like I had, um, in Bernath and, Brian Henderson was an amazing history teacher and he taught me how to think about it and analyze it from different points of view where, um, maybe, maybe what we're sort of like predisposed to assume from the context of the history book is the correct thing to do. Maybe it wasn't because what about where were these people coming from? Right. So him him t- teaching me the Civil War was pretty uh, mind opening, and I credit him a lot for, um, for yeah, teaching me how to think about this stuff and and like finding my way to libertarianism. I was always confused by the Civil War because I remember early on you hear about it was all it was all about slave slavery in North versus South and that kind of a thing. And then revisiting it in later grades, maybe in high school and realizing like, Oh, there was a lot more going on there than just the slavery element. You know, that was a big factor, but not the only factor. And then outside of school, it all kind of like, Oh, it was really just all about slavery. (laughs) And then, (laughs) you know, it always bothered me because it was like, well, this can't be the whole story here. And and my wife had a teacher who was from the South and he looked at the civil war as a war of Northern aggression. Yeah. And, uh, she said that was really useful for her, um, in the way she looked at it and sort of gave her a much more, um, balanced picture of the thing. But, uh, you know, that's something I've, I've been trying to learn a little bit more about now as an adult and with my, with a more liberty focused perspective of, you know, my impression right now with Lincoln is, Oh, you, you think you're going to secede. No, you don't. Right. You're, you know, and that's because that's because the uh, Hamiltonians won out in the end and the Jeffersonians didn't. Yeah. You know, cause the, the Jeffersonian school of thought would have been perfectly comfortable with secession. Right. Yeah, and and the Hamiltonian had the central banking and everything where you were dependent on all the parts to to pay their fair share. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not a fan of Hamilton. No. Definitely didn't watch the play. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. I've heard some but, of the know, music and I I I can't. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I I don't I don't have any interest in that. But you know, it's funny you you know talking about education because it's it's tough cuz you don't want to especially young kids, you can't just have them floating around in the ether without telling them anything. You know, you got to give them some frame of reference. Mm-hmm. But then you don't want to have them be in a place where they have to completely unlearn everything 
later as an adult because that's a, that's a tough one too because you know not everyone's up for that you know yeah 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 well we live in an amazing age for that because there's so much information available on the computer that um if you can send a kid down a rabbit hole where they do their own research and stuff like that's pretty awesome <laughs> you know get get them doing a project or something and and they'll learn on their own about something if if they're so inclined but absolutely yeah if you're not compelling them to do something they don't want to do um you know the self-motivation is, is way more powerful yeah and but you know it's i you mentioned before sort of the you know the boomer con sort of people and i think the reason they struggle with the covid stuff and with the um ukraine stuff is you know once you accept that uh you can't listen to these people and you can't trust them you know th- you pay a price for that and i think i think people just don't want to go down that road because the cost is too high of of having to not trust anybody anymore right you need something to believe in mhm yeah and, and you know it makes sense um and you know sometimes i wish <laughs> i was still ignorant of a lot of things because um it can be hard to know how to figure out what's true and what isn't but at the end of the day it's a much better place to be because you're you're freed from all this nonsense yeah just just waste your time and energy yeah you know like people can talk about what's going on in the news and i can just completely not care (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not eagles versus cardinals (laughs) right yeah exactly yeah, I I don't know. Like I still I still find myself getting sucked in um into, you know, the current goings on, mainstream whatever. Um but yeah, it is I find myself like especially with Trump. This is this is a funny thing. I found myself to the magas I would bash Trump but then to the liberals, I would defend him. <laughs> and it was just because I'm antagonistic. And so someone starts praising him a little too much. I'd be like, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> he didn't pardon Assange, right? Or he, You know how he's, how, he, how he's stuck up for those January 6th protesters <laughs> who are still in yeah. prison for... With no charges, no charges, indefinite detention, no charges. What does that violate? 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's the biggest thing to hit MAGA people with. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing that's that and the vaccine are the two things that have really got them like kind of going in the other direction. Um, from my observation. Oh yeah. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't drop his vaccine stuff, I mean, he, I think he's dead in the water. He's gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird one that he's hung on to that one for so long. I don't know if it's just that like he knows he's got responsibility. And so then like he doubles down or what it is like, (laughs) it doesn't make political sense. No, I mean, you know, you could chalk it up to like he's lost his ability to sort of put his finger on the pulse of of the energy of his base. Yeah, because um, he he really had a knack for that in his first campaign. But now, and without he Twitter, really set the tone. Yeah, um, you know, it was amazing. Like he just could figure out what he needed to talk about like the the forbidden thing like the border it's like oh no one wants to talk about the border okay i'll talk about the border yeah yeah and he was talking about wikileaks when he was um campaigning Um, right he was like oh i love wikileaks and then yeah well and you know speaking of that right and what the biggest thing and regardless of what anyone thinks of Trump, the best thing he ever did was he made it okay for the Republicans to be against the Iraq war. Yeah. Or just anti-war in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in general, for sure. And then especially with Iraq and, you know, before him, you wouldn't, there would be very few Republicans who would be willing to oppose that openly. Yeah. Yeah, throughout eight years of Obama, it was like everyone was just pro-war. And the only problem was, like, the only thing that the Republicans had was kind of like, oh, you're spending too much, (laughs) you know? Well, and that's all they have now. Yeah, it really is, pretty much. And, you know, they really showed how pathetic they are in the... 2020 on with um well we can't do a three trillion uh covid bailout that's too much money it needs to be one and a half trillion yeah or was it it's like oh so the fiscally responsible people are just arguing over how many more trillions to print right yeah instead of like you know what the answer is the answer is zero trillions how about that (laughs) Yeah, how how about we don't just inflate your money supply and take most of it for ourselves and give it to our friends? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? People look at that and they're like, oh, cool, direct payments from the government, which completely unprecedented and really stupid. But that accounted for less than... It was less I than 10%. Of that bill. It was less than okay. 10%. Yeah, it was... So the that first big spending bill was like 2.1 or 2.3 trillion dollars and it it came out to something around 14 grand 
per American citizen, which I don't know if that counts kids and stuff. That could mess up stats because it was adults who got the the checks. But yeah, so fourteen grand and you get twelve grand back. Or I mean twelve hundred back. So that's less than ten percent. That's like eight or nine percent of what was taken from you. And the rest of it yeah. the rest of it went to military industry contractors and just foreign aid, quote unquote, which is just cronyism, you know. Tons of cronyism and bribery and stuff around the world, you know. Bribery to go, bribery to lots of people to go along with the agenda is pretty much what it all went to. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's so disgusting, and and people are so just unaware of of how you know, if you actually took the time to look at any omnibus bill. Like some of them got attention, like the big ones. Like, oh, look at this crazy omnibus bill. Can you believe they're doing that? And it's like, no, that's every single one of them. Yeah. Like every bill is like that. Maybe the dollar amounts change, but um, it's all just paying off cronies. Well, and then there's the black budget stuff that um, that we don't even know about. Like it never it never officially gets passed or anything. It's just um, it's just done kind of under the table, um, between the federal reserve. I don't even know how the federal reserve is involved in, in a day of digital dollars, you can pretty much just put zeros into a computer and say you have a lot of money if you're the government, apparently, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you know, the Pentagon, recently well they've failed their audit for the last eight years or whatever yeah, it is their self-audit they they can't account for how many billion dollars of property yeah oh it's trillions oh yeah it was uh, one or two trillion yeah i mean so it, right before on on september 10th 2001 donald rumsfeld I don't know if this was this wasn't specifically the Pentagon, I guess, but he said we cannot track two point three trillion dollars of transactions. <laughs> and then apparently that's the part of the Pentagon that got hit. <laughs> yeah, I've so heard I guess that. it was the Pentagon. <laughs> Oops, I got that wrong. It was the part of the World Trade Center that got hit which held the records of the missing transactions. I, that's, yeah, I mean, I've never really gone down that road, but I, I have heard that rumbling. I'm, I'm terrible at knowing details, so, and, and putting them all together. But, I mean, you can't, like, if there was a, a private company who couldn't account for uh, even, you know, $100 million on their balance sheet, you know, the the government would be all over them and there'd be all these news stories about how terrible they are. Yeah. But the government can just not account for billions and trillions of dollars. And, um, well, there ain't jack shit you can do about it. So yeah. I guess you just gotta not care. Just kind of sweep it under the rug and hope not too many people care, <laughs> which is generally true. Yeah. 
Well, and you know, it goes back. I don't know if you've read uh, Mike Swanson's book, um, The War State. No. Um, that is a good one. And it goes into good detail about how before the Second World War, there was no permanent uh, defense industry. Whenever there was wars and whatnot, the regular private sector would just retool to build weapons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like Bethlehem Steel had a big shipbuilding company. And then when the wars would end, they would just go back to building whatever it was they were building before. And things changed after the war to where, you know, dedicated defense companies came into being that stayed on. And one of the reasons for that was, uh, or one of the things that changed was that they no longer had to bid in the same way. They wouldn't just throw it out to like any old company and take the person with the best bid. They would, you know, award contracts to companies based on some sort of goofy criteria. Right. And, you know, it was this, this spawn of, you know, the think tanks and all the people who, who over amplified the Soviet threat and what their capabilities were and um, justify, well, see, we need to build a million of these missiles because they have a million of this other kind of missile. And then of course, years later, you find out that they never had half the stuff that they claim they had, but nonetheless, that's how they justified spending billions and billions of dollars. So like the cold war in and of itself, not that there weren't issues with the Soviet Union, but you know the way it all went down was essentially um, a defense industry bailout <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, or or just basically money laundering. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a better way. I saw a great meme. Uh, so- of Zelensky with a washing like a horizontal washing machine door in his military like his bulletproof vest that he wears around to look like he's military so that he's he's opening up and Chuck Schumer's there with his arm around him you know and they're in front of the flags and whatnot it's just a a good meme doesn't need any words right (laughs) yeah no, it doesn't. I've met Chuck Schumer. Are you serious? Like, I mean, yeah, I worked for a nonprofit in New York for a while, and and they did a big uh, event every year, a summit for New York City, and, and he was a guest speaker. Um, so I met him in passing. It's not like we hung out. But, um, man, real-life scumbag. Like, yeah, he's just like everything about the guy. Such a sleaze ball, and and when you see him in real life, like he he's just as sleazy as he seems like he would be. <laughs> That's you know funny. What, what was funny is like he had a time slot. They the people who ran this event they actually did a really good job, and they kind of did like a TED Talk format. Like everything was very close together. 
you know, broken down, they'd have a panel discussion, they'd have short presentations and different things. And they only had five minutes of um, wiggle room built into the schedule. Um, and he showed up, I think, 35 minutes late. <laughs> so they had they had to like do all this finagling to keep it working. And then he went like 20 or 30 minutes over his allotted time. He just completely like comes in late, fucks up the whole program and then, you know, leaves and his whole uh, sleazy retinue with him. Um, and, and the other sleazeball they had was Corey Booker. Huh? And he is the same way. And the, and the, one of the girls who worked organization, one of my coworkers and, and she organized this whole event and, and she was really good at it. Um, like just really professional, really good at keeping this thing running. And Corey Booker was just hitting on her openly and shamelessly, like in front of everybody. No kidding. And, and saying things that would like, and I heard like her and, and, you know, other coworkers sort of talking about it. And, and you could just tell that if it had been anyone else, like if it had been a white Republican or I don't know, that would have been completely unacceptable or, or if it's some, someone who wasn't powerful, but because it was Cory Booker, like she clearly wasn't cool with it, but at the same time, wasn't nearly as mad as she would have been if like, uh, uh, I don't know somebody other than him would have been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And it just, it was like another one of those little things that made me the way I am. Like the way those people conducted themselves. Huh. I've wondered, um, like with apparently with Trump, there's a thing where like, if you meet him in person, he's got this thing about him <clears throat> that's very, um, I don't know how to describe it. If I I don't think attractive is the right word, but he's he uh, he commands a presence, right? And I wonder with other people like someone like Fauci, right? How does everyone like just stand? How how does he go into a room of like two hundred people and just lie his ass off, and no one like holds him accountable, right? Like what? He, it's almost like he must have some kind of presence that does something to people that they just leave him alone or let him do his thing. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I've definitely heard that about, you know, most politicians or presidents that they have this incredible presence and charm. Um, you know, Obama famously is people who met him talk about that, like his smile could, you know, if Obama comes into a room and smiles, like everyone he is wrapped around his little finger huh. kind of a thing. Yeah. And uh, so it, there's clearly something to that. I think 
people make the mistake a lot of the time of of calling those people stupid. I mean, they are stupid and they do a lot of stupid things, but like within that doesn't mean they're not psych or uh, calculated psychopaths. Exactly. Like they're, they're very intelligent people. They're very skilled and they're, um, they, uh, you know, they're not to be taken lightly. I mean, some of them are, but, it's easy to just sit, see all the dumb things they do and, and think that they're, they're incompetent fools, but they're, it's almost more scary because the good ones are, are not incompetent. They're just, um, evil. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and by, and by good ones, I don't mean that they're good. I mean that they're skillful. They're skilled and yeah politics it's hard to know who's like who's a dupe and who's a controller because you know the deep state goes really deep like the people really controlling things are generally they say they're the ones whose names we don't know you know like i mean i'm not familiar with many rothschild's names or anything but like it, it with someone like fauci it's like all right he's an unelected official who's been there for 30 or 40 years that's pretty deep state right but then it also seems like he's got masters who tell him what to do and and then you get in this thing like obviously he's accountable for his own actions but it's also like um yeah maybe he's not the best example maybe better examples are like the news broadcasters and stuff like that you know who are just super uh, compliant and and go along pushing an agenda that at some point has to be pretty clearly um, anti-human, and yet they do it anyway. And they're obviously controlled, but like they've got to bear some responsibility as well. These are the things I battle with. This is my own, this yeah. is my own like inner. I want justice, but I also want to just like let go of like the fear and anger and stuff and just like live on a, on a better, on a higher level, you know? For sure. But I think there is a real, um, arrogance um that a lot of them have where they genuinely believe that they are better than everyone else and that they are um the ones who should be making decisions on behalf of others because they know better yeah and and um you know you can be a well-intentioned person who can who can go down that road um you know, because you see it on a on a small scale, and that that was something I witnessed actually when I did work in the city. Because I have, well, you know, the the background I have coming from a rural place, but mm-hmm. I spent time in the city, and I I liked the city a lot, and I 
became quite comfortable there. Um, but in the course of the some of the work I did there, I realized, you know, there's the people where I come from who hate everyone in the city because they're stupid and they don't know what they're talking about. And then everyone in the city thinks everyone else is stupid and doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And because I had kind of done both, I could see through a little bit of that and see where each one was right or wrong about different things. And one of the interesting examples of that was um, there had been a secession movement proposed in upstate New York because it's heavily agricultural up there. Their economy was suffering significantly. They weren't allowed to do any fracking or oil exploration, even though they have the same shale um, bands that Pennsylvania has. They go up into central New York and right. western New York state. And, uh, you know, this was during the big shale boom in 2013, 14, 15 era. And so that there was a group saying, hey, look, we're screwed. We can't make any money. The agriculture is not doing anything. Um, we have shale, like at least let us do some exploration but that was banned in New York state and all the policy for the state of New York is decided in Manhattan or not decided in Manhattan, but, but decided on behalf of Manhattan and New York city. Cause that's where all the people are. And basically what they're saying is all the policy that caters to the city is crushing us. And yeah, there's less people here, but we have all this vast area and so we either want to create a 51st state or we want to break off and become part of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a huge movement, but it was significant. It was getting attention. People were reporting on it and stuff. Were they actually talking about becoming part of Pennsylvania? Well, I think they preferred becoming their own state, but an alternative okay. was because you know how it is well we have 50 states and that's that right so, yeah what are you gonna make us change the flag <laughs> yeah so their their thought was well if you can't handle a, a different number of states then maybe we could just become part of an existing one that allows fracking for example and um you know i brought it up to one of my coworkers. i just thought it was interesting i was like hey have you heard of this and it was just sort of like met with a scoff, like, huh, you know, these idiots up there who, you know, these bumbling fools who have no idea what they're talking about and have all these crazy ideas and they want to drill for oil. Like what a bunch of morons. And what struck me about it was a complete um, lack of desire to want to understand the situation and why people might feel the way that those people did. It was just immediately written off as a bunch of foolish people. And it was just eye-opening to me that you could, you could disagree with that and you could say that those people were wrong, but you could also say like, yeah, I understand. They're kind of in a tough situation. Yeah. And 
what could we do to alleviate that situation? And so you can understand why the people up there would have no respect for the people in the city and, and people in the city clearly didn't have respect for them. Meanwhile, they're sitting in their, um, you know, on the 19th floor in Midtown Manhattan, sort of deciding what's best for people all yeah. over the place. And, and using power to get on the elevator and get up to the 19th floor that power is sourced from oil, likely, <laughs> that could mm -hmm. have come from closer by. Now, I mean, I have to say I have my problems with fracking as a method just because it seems to compromise aquifers and stuff. Like, it's, I have no problem with harvesting oil and using it um, as a principle, but there do seem to be some, uh, some issues with fracking that I don't know the details of, but, um, yeah, I get the impression that, that there have been problems, <laughs> um, especially right. when it comes to mixing the oil with the water in the aquifers and then not having drinking water. Yeah. And I've heard that thing too. And of course the hard part is, um, it all depends who you talk to. So of course, the anti-fracking people say, oh, it's the worst thing in the world. And then the pro-fracking people say, oh, it's the best thing in the world. And that right. doesn't do any of those things. Yeah. And yep. I'm like you, I'm willing to uh, acknowledge there could be problems with it. But uh, I'm also not convinced it's 100% bad either. Right. But, it, you know, it's just so hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. I wish we could just uh, move on to like cold fusion or something like that. So some, some kind of like really efficient, safe nuclear energy, which I feel like if, if they would put the resources into developing it, we could have it. I th I'm pretty sure people have come up with it and it's been buried. Um, because yeah, certain company, like it, it certainly happens with technological breakthroughs where a company will be like, well, this is disruptive. Let's not have a disruption by the patent and no one ever sees it again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and that's something uh, David Gornoski has talked a bunch about on his show is um, the cold nuclear fusion stuff where you can, you can do it in a much more stable way than we do now. Yeah. Um, and the point being that there's any number of solutions to these things that could be discovered and could be, sorted out and refined and become very viable if you pulled all of the interference out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Instead, they're just legislators trying to, you know, pick and choose winners and losers, um, creating all these perverse incentives and disincentives and you never know what act the good, you know, the market can figure out what the good clean sustainable thing can be but yeah well and the same thing is true for any industry um the medical industry health healthcare um <laughs> <laughs> medical care man talk about an industry that's been captured by the corporations absolutely at, but, you know, they couldn't have done it without their friends in government. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And it's that's the part that never gets um, talked about, you know, by the left, who's who's all too willing to be anti-corporation, but they don't look at the second half of the equation. Right. And actually going full circle back to Peter Schiff. When I, when I was early on and listening to him, I watched his, because uh, Joe Rogan had mentioned it, him down at the Occupy Wall Street um, protests in 2011. And I had actually, it was funny because I lived in the, in the city at that time I was going to school. And I remember hearing about it, um, but I never really saw it because I was up in Midtown and it was all the way down in, uh, you know, downtown by the financial district. Right. And, you know, Manhattan's a big place, so it's easy to miss. Um, But there's footage of him. He went down there with a camera and a microphone with a sign that said, I am the 1%. Let's talk. Mm hmm. And you perhaps you've seen it, but he, he was so good at explaining how, yeah, I get that you're mad and you should be mad about all these corporate bailouts and the bank bailouts and all this nonsense. He's like, it, you're right. It shouldn't have happened and it's wrong, but you're in the wrong place. You're on Wall Street. You should be down in Washington, D.C. because they're the ones who created this situation and allowed it to happen. He's like, you can be mad at the Wall Street guys for doing what they did, but, um, you know, they're like the people at the party drinking the punch and the government is the the one who continues to spike the punch. So it's like, yeah, of course, the Wall Street people are going to get crazy and do stupid stuff because they're being enabled to do it, you know, by the government. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was just the thing such is- a good. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, it was just it was just a good way to shift the focus of of that narrative. Yeah. Well, the thing, like as I see it, it sort of goes both ways too, because the corporations enable the government, and the government enables the corporations. It's that like that whole revolving door thing. It's um, it it makes it really hard to put the blame. You, you can't put the blame soundly on one or the other because it's both. Right. Well, and everyone definitely has their share of the blame. I mean, I agree with that. Um, But I do think things like regulatory capture, um, where the, the lobbyists or the corporate interests catch a lot of the blame because they're throwing all this money at government. It's like, yeah, if you, yeah, if you got rid lobbying. of the factor of the government, then the corporations would not have that tool to use to um, monopolize their industry. Right. And, or take advantage and of it. And then at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean that they would all be, therefore, be benevolent, you know, actors. They could still do a lot of yeah. nasty stuff, but... Um, it's, it's much easier to, um, you know, at least with a private company, 
there's always some level of choice involved. Whereas with government, when it's coercion and and you're forced into things, it's a whole different dynamic. Yeah. Um, and you like the, listening to the Daryl Cooper stuff you mentioned about the mines in West Virginia. And at that time, the federal government wasn't nearly as powerful. And, and it is, you know, it's kind of hard to listen to that if you're a free market guy. Because you're like, man, these, these guys, it's hard to see what the government, how the government laid the groundwork for that. Um, because I always like to look for how you can blame them first. <laughs> um, but you know, nonetheless, like they could have gotten away with that stuff and they did get away with it. But in the end, there's a lot more you can do about that than you can about when the government is oppressing you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like they wanted the government to come in, the workers wanted the government to come in and help them. And then the government ended up just like backing up the corporations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, they're telling the country they're coming in to help the workers. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they didn't create the situation per se, but they certainly didn't help it. Right. Yeah. They just, they just, figured out which side would be more advantageous to them to land on and did that <laughs> regardless of yeah. any kind of ethics or morality. And and that's just it. It's like politics on any level always motivated by all the wrong incentives. And whereas at least market influences have incentives that are mutually beneficial Right. Even yeah. if things go sideways, they self-correct, and it's a lot easier. It it like it incentivizes honesty. Right, and and someone's greed in that case can actually benefit the public. So even if someone's being a selfish, greedy moron, if they're providing a good and service at a reasonable price because they want to make money and they're greedy, you're benefiting from that. Whereas government greed is nothing but downside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, government doesn't produce anything. <laughs> right. But, you know, I saw even in the nonprofit work, I, which I did very little of, I just worked part-time for a couple of years and it was all about city planning and preservation and things like that. Okay. But immediately it, it taught me about just how politics ruins everything because the organization was very old. It was founded in the 1890s and it had a public art focus originally. And so like most institutions it had become long uh, unmoored from its original mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still somewhat close. But it was always these internal discussions of, well, here's the correct stance for us to take on this thing happening in city politics. But we can't take that stance because one of the people involved is a developer who's on our board. Right. And so we can't come and oppose the developer who is on our board who gives us tons of money 
So now we have to play this weird, like wishy-washy sort of middle ground kind of a stance. Whereas it's clear to everybody what the stance of the organization should be if it right. wants to have any integrity at all. Yeah. Um, but instead you have to play this stupid game. And, um, you know, I just, that made all that stuff made a big impression on me. You know, I remember one of the first things I did was I, I wrote a quote, um, to that the, the president of the organization was supposed to have said that we could provide to somebody so that they could have a quote from the president. (laughs) The president never, never even said it. I wrote it. And, um, and um, maybe he saw it. I don't even know if he did. And then it was sent off. But um, but the one of the directives I had was, hey, we like what this guy's doing down in Greenwich Village. Um, we think it's like a good effort and it's a preservation thing and we should care about it. But we don't really like the guy and we don't really like his organization. So we don't want to be like directly praising him. We just want to be <laughs> praising like, the outcome of his project. <laughs> I was just like, Oh man. Okay. Whatever. But you know, it's just all this little, all this little, like it sounds silly sleazy. stuff. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, there's just no escaping it. So, I mean, as much as I'm for decentralization, you're always going to have goofy politics involved. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of how like the EPA is made up of, people from oil companies and who knows, maybe train companies, (laughs) (laughs) chemical companies, that kind of thing, you know, and, and they end up just being, they're, they're supposed to be protecting the environment for the people of the United States, but instead they are really just kind of helping the companies cover up their mistakes. And, the only people who are actually being held accountable are, are the small guys, you know, who with minor infractions. Well, the big guys, you know, maybe they get a fine or something, but they essentially get away scot-free because they've got someone on the oh, board. Yeah. There was um, a documentary. I just kind of thought of this. It's, it's a little bit off topic, but um, Michael Moore, you know, that crazy dude who did uh, Fahrenheit 9-11? Mm-hmm. that was so badly done. He actually did a decent one about the biofuel energy plants. And he was showing how they take like green, big green trees harvested from rainforests and stuff and just like chop them up and throw them in these biofuel plants. But because it's green, it can't burn by itself. So they throw like, all kinds of tires and stuff in and, and use like <laughs> non green. They, they, they end up using oil essentially to make the biofuel burn because the biofuel is not ready to be combustible. <laughs> so they have to actually use more petrochemicals in order to produce the same amount of energy to make up for the biofuel. That's not yet combustible ridiculous yeah it doesn't surprise me at all i the epa reminds me of a story 
again, around 2015, there was a gold mine in Colorado and the EPA was after the guy for some reason. I don't remember the full story, but uh, he owned the property and he said, I think they were worried about him getting stuff in the river or something. And he's like, or they were trying to seize the property for some reason. And he wouldn't let them on. And there was this big ongoing thing. And eventually it ended with, they were fining him 20 or $30,000 a day until um, he let them on. And so eventually he just couldn't deal with that kind of uh, fine. So he gave up on it. And so they come into the mind of like, look around and examine it and everything. And they start just screwing around with a backhoe or an excavator. And they punched a hole somewhere in one of the walls and the mine had been flooded. And it just opened the whole thing up into draining into a river. Oh, wow. <laughs> the, the whole river turned brown and yellow because huh. of all this stuff rushing out of the mine. And um, so they go in to get after this guy for contaminating the river and in turn empty the mine into it and then spend all their time trying to cover it up. <laughs> but the e the EPA itself caused the problem. And, um, you know, it's just so absurd. Meanwhile, like, you know, there's the old ski hill property around here that supposedly yeah. had lead in it, you know, and they made a super fun site out of it and all this stuff or, you know, if you and I had a and screwed around business. the owner for many, many years, who had no idea yeah. about any of it because it all happened before they had bought it. Yeah, right. What? A yeah, nightmare. exactly. And but you know, they'll come shut down your business if they catch you throwing paint cans away improperly or something. But meanwhile, they'll and, and, you know, and that's just so typical of all the government agencies. You know, the military is the biggest polluter in the world. But then, you know, the EPA will come at you for not disposing of something the right way. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, this thing in Ohio, I can't help but think it would have been more effective and safe to suck it up with some, um, like, septic trucks or something, you know? Right. Like, if there's actually a spill, do you really need to light it on fire? <laughs> like, couldn't you just, like, dig a pit and let the stuff drain and suck it up with something else? <laughs> and it wouldn't be a big deal? I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know how pressurized it was or what how the stuff reacts to the environment, you know. But sure doesn't seem like they made the wisest decision if the goal is to not kill life, which maybe that's the goal. And <laughs> Well, for one thing, and I haven't looked much into it, but the, just the simple fact that they're saying, Oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Not, nothing is contaminated. Like that in and of itself is uh, very, very fishy. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they're staying away while they're telling the people who live there that it's okay to go home. <laughs> nah, you you don't need you, know, you don't need a gas mask. Yeah, there's one good thing that can happen. I mean, you alluded to it earlier. People's memories are short. You know, apropos the pivot from COVID right into Ukraine, and and people fell for it. But um, you know, if this sort of thing at least helps people realize what bumbling morons these agencies are i mean that'd be a good start yeah definitely and keep that and remember it everybody they are bumbling idiots who don't care about you (laughs) i think that's a good podcast what do you say sure that was almost two hours Starting to wow, yeah. Starting to fade a little bit. Yeah, I hear you. It's getting close to my bedtime. Yeah, me too. But but even before my bedtime, I uh, I have a good hour or two of not being uh, very with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's fun, dude. Yeah, this has been nice. I I definitely enjoyed it and probably do it again. If I if I keep this thing up and start getting it out there and so far I've been I've been recording um so this is the third one third third maybe fourth one that I've recorded because I did a a long night with one guy where we did kind of two podcasts in one night. Um okay. Yeah, that was with Jeff from, uh, he's one of my freedom buddies from the Freedom Cell Network, if you ever heard of that. I haven't. Yeah, it's, uh, like, there's an online, there, there's a site called freedomcells.org where uh, people meet up with other people in the local area for um, trade and barter or just whatever you know it's it's like a dating site but for just to meet up with other people who prioritize freedom so i got on there in like 21 early 2021 um when i was feeling lonely because a bunch of my friends were just sheltering in place for the last year at that point (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i'm like all right i'm ready to get out and do stuff with people who want to get out and do stuff. <laughs> so, so yeah, I did that and met some cool people. And yet I still am like, like most of the people I met are not from directly around here. So it's still like, I want to make more, or I, I, I should say I want to culture more connections with people directly around me you know as good as as it is to make connections with people who live further away like down towards philly and stuff i am really wanting to get local people 
um, just into my life, I guess. Um, you know, by buying food from Kelsey and and Ansel. If you know, uh, you know Patriot Farms up by my parents. Uh, heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. Just you know, some of these local producers. Since there's a war on the food chain. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great idea. And, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate. I, I have a, a couple friends who they're maybe not as, um, far down this road as, as I am, but, um, I, I have a, I know it's not entirely true, but my my theory is that even the boomer cons, but especially Republicans of my generation or people who are raised that way or have that worldview, like regular, like people who are actually trying to be conservatives, mm-hmm. they're they're all libertarians. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, and, could be. Yeah you know, the things that they vow, like they might never acknowledge or admit that, but in terms of the things that they value, the Republican party doesn't represent them right. at all. Yeah. Um, and, and they kind of know that, but they're not willing to, to go seeking things elsewhere. And I, and I was in that position for a while myself and, because you you feel politically homeless, but you don't know what your alternatives are, right? And um, so when I talk about this sort of stuff with other people who are like me, you know, they they're receptive to it all. They kind of know that it's true, but they just would probably never be willing to to say they're a libertarian and I still, I don't, I don't know what I am yet. Um, I, I'm still politically homeless in, in some sense, but I would, I would consider myself more of like a, a traditional conservative meshed with a classical liberal meshed with a libertarian. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've sort of given up on trying to um label myself for for so long I've referred to myself as a libertarian that that's still in a way a default but like I also see that um I I feel that a lot of the magas are just as natural allies to me as libertarians and I've realize that there's libertarians who are not as much allies with me as some of the, the more just conservative and freedom oriented Republicans, because like, I don't think that libertinism is a thing that really can work in a society that's free. Um, cause you need to be responsible to be free. And that includes, um, like moral responsibility. And as much as I want to 
want everyone to just like pursue their own ends and and be happy and carefree you have to you, you you can only actually do that without infringing on people's freedom if you kind of are socially conservative <laughs> yeah because otherwise I, I it's feel... it's gonna like i've i've woken up to this because of the woke culture like i've sort of been driven into reactionary conservatism where i'm just like really against all of the the woke stuff to the point that I never thought I would be, you know, mm -hmm. I, I used to kind of laugh when my dad would say how the gays are coming for the kids. I'd be like, no, they're not, <laughs> you know? And now it's like, Oh yeah, they're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And I mean, so like I would be happy just calling myself like a Jeffersonian in the sense of, um, decentralization, um, no centralized banking, no foreign entanglements, you know, and I think a lot of so-called conservatives think that that's what they're, they are, and that that's what Republicans are. They just, and they're dissatisfied, but they can't, you know, you can't like leave the reservation as it were right yeah it's like they think that's still what it stands for even though every representative does the opposite right and like oh you know i remember talking to someone and you know yeah you know trump he's trying to do the right thing but he can't because of all these darn rhinos and i was sort of looking at it like i was blaming trump for it but they're like, well, no, it's the rhino's fault. And then I was kind of like, well, how long are you a rhino when you're just doing what the party always does? <laughs> like, when are you just like actually just a Republican? Because that's what Republicans are now. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and uh, really, as far as the um political action strategies or whatever i don't ca I, like i don't differentiate too much i if someone wants to be a freedom oriented republican that's great and if someone wants to be a libertarian that's also great you know i don't i don't really care you know there's this this new right and post libertarian and all that kind of stuff and i'm like all right so anarchism is the goal right and as long as as long as you're pushing things towards freedom, that's kind of what matters to me, you know. And don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Here's to that, dude. Yeah. How about it? But cheers. Cheers. <laughs> yes, it was fun chatting with you, and um, I, I've actually I'd be curious to see how how your podcast goes. Um, I've, I've thought about, I mean, I don't, I'd have to make the time for it, obviously, but I've thought about, I've thought about thinking about doing one that sort of um, appeals to people who were like me, who were conservatives, who, whose parents were Republicans, but, 
like, I don't know, I'd call it like the recovering conservative or something where you just talk about how all of the things that you thought were Republican and conservative actually never were. Right. And how, where, where you thought the things you value actually lie outside of those uh, frameworks. Yeah. And because, because I think when you, if you, if you say like, oh, I'm a libertarian now and you come at it, immediately you'll just lose people because because they've got some preconceived idea yeah yeah whereas if you come at it like hey i've actually just been trying to be a real conservative or i've been trying to be a, a real republican like okay what does that word mean like republic not this like you know that's a different thing um than this democracy so-called the tyranny of the mob yeah so like it's i guess what you'd call it is like what scott horn always says like attacking the right from the right but you don't have to in this case like attack it but just point out how okay you value small government and the republicans are not giving you that nor have they for yeah many many years um but anyway i don't know if i'll ever do that but um maybe i'll be inspired by what you're doing and (laughs) yeah i mean i'm taking a very loose approach to it where i'm just slapping it all together and we'll see what happens right um i am going on Burn Babylon Burn in a couple days, which is a more established podcast. And I've been on my friend Jeff's podcast a couple times. So it's like I've been a guest on his podcast. And yeah, I'm just like, I'm getting out there because I figured even if I'm not the smartest guy in the world, I I want to add, I want to add to the amplification of truth. You know, I want to, mm-hmm. I want to help promote whatever that is and and maybe no one will pay attention but that's okay what i've realized with um with doing this is i'm getting together and talking to people more and that in itself is good you know just hanging out with friends on sort of like a regimented scheduled kind of basis is in itself a good thing so even if the podcast doesn't go anywhere um I'm not going to regret it, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that that's great. I'm, I love that. And, uh, and I appreciate you asking me to be part of it. Cause I love talking about this stuff. It's nice to talk to, you know, a lot of it's still pretty new to me, but, um, I know you, you've been in the, the space for much longer. So it's sort of fun to, to come around to that, but um, I I could talk about it all day. You know, I I'm pretty into it. So yeah, yeah, me too. Tonight, tonight I was a little 
little tired, a little slow, but um, I really do appreciate the opportunity. So, Hey, well, thank you for coming on. And yeah, maybe next time I'll have you over and we'll hang out in the studio. Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. All right. Well, have a good night, man. Have a good week at work. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. See you around. Hey, do you want me to plug any websites like um, Historic Doors? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Historicdoors.com. Sweet. All right. Take care. I'll see you. All right. Bye. Bye.